You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. Following a strong start to the final quarter yesterday, global markets and uh, U.S. markets were certainly roiled today by news that President Donald Trump and First Lady uh, Melania Trump have tested positive for coronavirus. Warwick Lucas, Chief Investment Officer at Galileo, and Raymond Parsons, Professor in the School of Business and Governance at Northwest University, are on the line, as always, uh, with your end to the week. Warwick, the fact that POTUS now has COVID has added just a uh, yet another fascinating twist to an already intriguing U.S. election. And I fear we get far too much Clinton News Network coverage of U.S. politics in South Africa. And putting Trump's personal demeanor and his brashness aside, the battle here is really between Republicans and Democrats. It's still at its core what this is all about. How are you reading this? Uh, right. Good evening, uh, Michael, and to the listeners. Look, I think when it when it boils down to what do markets prefer when it when it relates to politics and elections, and markets prefer certainty as the simple answer. Now, to some degree, uh, that means some continuance of the presidency. Uh, markets tend to prefer incumbents in that they tend to be better known entities. But also, based on the tax policies of the two different candidates, I think there was a small leaning in the, um, in the view of markets towards the Trump camp. With this latest development, I think that there will obviously be tougher odds for a Republican uh, win. But by the same token, I think there was a, a, a big shadow in the background, and that was namely the possibility of a no-result outcome. Now, I think if you have one party that wins more clearly than another, that would suggest that you could take the risk of a no-result outcome off the table. And I think that perhaps is driving some of the recovery that we've seen in markets after the initial quite large sell-off that happened when we first uh, received the news. So obviously an evolving dynamic here. I mean, the questions um, that come to the fore is, for example, we now have a vice presidential debate that I think is going to be watched a lot more keenly than would usually have been the case. Mm. Uh, I think, secondly, there's a case of, well, Trump might be a COVID casualty for now, but between now and the 3rd of November, how many more potential politically significant COVID cases could there be? COVID has sort of thrown in a real extra dimension of rolling risk here that um, can really throw out quite a few surprises. It's a a pretty tough environment to be having an election, to be sure. uh, To forecast as well. And uh, we know how difficult it was for uh, both pollsters and betting markets the last time round. Trump certainly upended uh, the traditional logic in 2016. Raymond, how are you uh, reading this? How do you you see policy changing, let's say, under a Biden presidency or a re-elected Trump? Uh, and do you see COVID-19 significantly affecting the outcome? Hi, Michael. Yes, look, I, I think, firstly, let me say that the research on all the policy uncertainty industries around the world, including in the United States, have always shown a spike during this period prior to a key election, such as the presidential election. So it's not surprising, although there may be sharper and more acute dimensions to this particular campaign in the States, I think... When you look at the economic side of what does Biden stand for, I think you will find that there will be nuances that will differentiate him, for example, in terms of support for the global economic institutions like the World Trade Organization and so forth. 
So I think, although he didn't perform well on those issues, if you read his policy statements, that's where he's likely to be more of a sort of internationalist, or should I put it this way, a rule-based person who wants to see the world as far as possible run on a rule-based system. And of course, for small countries like South Africa, we should welcome that, because quite clearly it's in our favor as a small country to know we have the global protection of a world economy that is primarily driven by rules-based rules and procedures. You know, what makes us so fascinating, and I, I tend to agree with you, Raven, that uh, a rules-based uh, world order uh, certainly favors emerging markets uh, rather than uh, a very authoritarian type uh, approach that Trump has taken. Uh, that said, though, Trump is also, uh, for markets, Warwick, uh, been quite good in that he has certainly focused a lot of his attention on uh, Wall Street and uh, linked a large part of the success of his presidency to uh, the S&P 500 and uh, heaped a lot of pressure on Jerome Powell uh, as a result to uh, keep providing enough stimulus to keep the markets going. Uh, but just from a, a political perspective, how do you see COVID-19 uh, potentially impacting the, the run-up? Do, do you think there, there is now a case if uh, the, the main candidate cannot campaign to even delay the election? And you know, markets hate that kind of uncertainty, but uh, surely it could be a possibility now. Uh, Michael, I, I don't see that as a basis. I mean, after all, you know, who else potentially could get COVID? So, I think, from my point of view, I think it's a case of, well, the show must go on. I mean, after all, that's what vice presidents and acting presidents and all the rest are all about. In terms of COVID itself, I mean, let's, let's not forget that one of the big planks and the reason that up until COVID raised its head, Trump looked virtually unassailable, and that was because of a strong economy. So very clearly, the question of what happens in terms of uh, COVID data and outbreaks in the next month or so is absolutely critical. I mean, if, if we have a better outcome than the market and the populace would expect, then you just could see a swing towards Trump's camp. But otherwise, the lead that, that Trump had has obviously been vaporized by the whole uh, COVID debacle. So I think that's, that's really the, 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 the key question there. And uh, why we'll be watching that uh, vice presidential debate between uh, Pence and Harris so closely. Fascinating. It also doesn't uh, pass muster that uh, uh, we've uh, um, got two septuagenarians uh, slugging it out to be the next uh, president. Um, and we know the older you are, the higher the risks in terms of COVID. I was having a look at the numbers, uh, plus 70, according to the latest research, uh, the IFR that's the incident fatality rate uh, climbs to four and a half percent. So our thoughts are certainly with uh, POTUS and FLOTUS at this uh, very difficult time. Raymond, to bring it back to uh, the uh, policy uncertainty index that you released this week, what do the uh, PUI results for the third quarter say about uh, policy uncertainty in South Africa during uh, a time when uh, obviously the president is trying to build consensus at NEDLAC and forge uh, a very uh, slow-paced uh, economic plan out of this COVID mess? Well, Malka, I think it's clear that South Africa is still walking on a macroeconomic tightrope at the moment, which has been worsened, of course, by the coronavirus experience. But what is really saying, what the index is saying is that these persistently 
high levels of policy uncertainty become like a tax on investment. We need the private investment to drive the growth which creates the jobs. And this requires a, 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 a macroeconomic policy which gives a stable environment for the business decision makers and also for the consumers. Now, it's one thing to say that. Uh, it's been going on for some time. But what are two of the immediate ways of turning this around? The first is, of course, the immediate budget policy statement, which will come later this month, where what we want overall is consistency in our, in our fiscal management, dealing with the basic risks that have already been outlined on the fiscal front, and to indicate what exactly we're going to do about it. But secondly, and importantly, there's the growth plan, which is now urgent. And the key concern I have is not that there won't be some very positive elements. From what I, I know, there will be some very acceptable and key sort of building blocks on which we can uh, launch some pro-growth reforms and begin to turn this economy around, both in the short term and the long term. I think what worries me is that expectations have been built up so high as to what we need to do, that even with the best will in the world, uh, what is being proposed will, will fall short. And, and I don't think we should be hypocritical about that, but rather we should, we should grasp the opportunities which the growth plan will provide, and we have to indeed try to build on them. The other point is, which I think is also part of, of how we're going to manage it, inevitably, given the way this whole process is operated, there is a trade-off between consensus building on the one hand and those advantages, and the other hand, there will be the boldness and the leadership that needs to emerge given the magnitude of what we're facing. These are not normal circumstances, so you can't come up with a normal plan. I think it's very important that it should embody both as much, as much consensus as is possible, but on the other hand, there's another big test that it will inspire the necessary leadership uh, and, and the strength of will to do the things on which we can then build confidence. It's been said already, the cheapest form of stimulation and support is confidence. Now we already see on the corruption side, we're making some progress. We've got to translate that, that confidence into the tough decisions we now need to take, not only in the so-called mini-budget, but also in this overdue growth plan which we now need in order to implement, and the word is implement, the pro-growth reforms we now need to send out this message of hope and confidence that we can unlock the key potential of, of our economy. On that uh, issue of reform and also leadership, Warwick, uh, it, it's been a busy couple of weeks on that front. Uh, today we had the uh, invitation to apply for Spectrum uh, open and uh, last week, Friday, I think it was, we had the 11,800 megawatts of uh, new power procurement gazetted. Uh, two pretty big and key reform issues moving in the right direction to go along with a, a sweep of arrests. Now, clearly, the president has no say, uh, or at least shouldn't have any say, over the way the Hawks and the MPA conduct their business. But all of these events uh, do coalesce around a, a time frame that seems to make one believe that things are now happening rather more swiftly. Yes, Michael. I mean, both myself and, and Raymond have... Uh spoken quite a bit on this theme in the past, namely that there's lots of talk about plans, 
and ideas about how to get South Africa going. But of, of course, the key issue has been implementation um, and in the sense that it's been rather lacking. So, I mean, if we, for example, cast our minds back on the whole issue of spectrum release, I mean, remember that uh, Botswana, Lesotho, Swaziland all got theirs sorted out in mid-2015, and here we are still sitting here five years later with it not done. Now, I think a big part of the problem is, of course, we had to see Zuma's government gone. We had to see Ramaphosa then basically not only take over, but consolidate power enough to get rid of ministers that would have been getting in the way of it. And so finally, we, we only see ourselves many years later getting to the job now. And similar applies, of course, in, in, in relation to reforms at ESCOM. And, for example, the, the welcome headline today that we're going to finally see state purchase land released to black farmers and more importantly black farmers that will be competency tested before they simply before they yeah. can take it over so i think there's actually a process that is finally belatedly starting to get some traction here and not before time but obviously a long way to go and i think in the meantime we have perhaps allowed ourselves to get very stale in the process Mm, and that is, the, of course, the problem when things take so long to happen and uh, you piece them together uh, with such large gaps between them, it almost feels like nothing is happening. One needs to uh, condense and consolidate all the change and to really give it now momentum. One has to see the uh, SIDS uh, infrastructure products, uh, products, uh, projects, I should say, uh, which are products, uh, once again, of a long consensus-making uh, process. We need to see those projects get off the ground, and, uh, and that will just um, add another plank um, to this reform program. Just internationally, Raymond, the, the other issue that we haven't touched on in a while is Brexit, and it looks like the risks of a hard Brexit by uh, the end of the year have again resurfaced. Yes, they have. Just very quickly, just to end up on that other issue, I think the three words we want to see, both in the mini-budget and in the economic plan, is implementation, implementation, mm. implementation. And that will build as much confidence as you can ever hope, because it will then be a cumulative process. Just as we've lost confidence on, on a cumulative basis, we can rebuild it. But coming to Brexit, it's back in the headlines, as you've indicated, for two main reasons. Firstly, that the UK-EU negotiations have stalled in the last couple of months and that the UK has now passed legislation to abrogate certain sections of its interim treaty with the EU and the EU is now taking them to court about that. So what I'm really saying here is just to alert us that, that the risks of a hard Brexit, say, uh, in a few months' time, are now back on the radar and we know, of course, that South Africa's broad interests, broad trade interests with, with the UK and the EU are protected by the agreement which was concluded between SACU and the, and the UK about two years ago. But I think we should still keep an eye on the situation because, firstly, if there is a hard Brexit in a few months' time, all, the, all those logistical disruptions which we were warned about before, will, of course, then occur at the ports and so forth. So you don't have to be the UK or the EU to find that your trade as a third country with those entities could well be disrupted by, by that. And secondly, of course, the question has been put very strongly that uh, if, if the UK is prepared to abrogate 
its agreement with the EU, would it be willing to abrogate other other agreements as well when it suited them? So I think these are I think just something for us to watch uh, because uh, that story is not over until the fat lady sings. Well, it all adds up to a very bumpy final quarter of uh, what has already been uh, a quite remarkable year from uh, all respects. Who would have called the Argentinian stock exchange as uh, the top performing stock exchange for quarter three? Raymond Parsons and Warwick Lucas with your weekly wrap here on Classic Business.